0: Uh, Turn there or open up to the book of Matthew, Matthew 27 uh, today. And so I want to talk a little bit about what we're going to be doing is uh, we started last week a little mini series going into this Easter season, uh, resurrection season, thinking about um, some really important events. We would call these big theological events that took place. So we looked at the fact last week of the suffering God. Um, Today we'll take a look at the the dying God or the crucified God. God. Next week we'll take a look, obviously, as at the resurrected God, the resurrected one. Then um, the following week after that, immediately after uh, Easter, uh, we'll take a look at what I would describe as the reigning God, or otherwise known as a really important event, what we would call the ascension. Um, and, and these are really important uh, theological concepts that we see kind of embedded in the Christian faith. If you've ever studied these things or thought about them or given any special, unique attention to these things, uh, my suggestion is, is don't. Um, overlook these things. They're, they're really central to what we would describe as uh, becoming followers of Jesus. So with that, I want to take a look at this morning at the subject of the dying God. Before we jump in, I want to uh, just say something with regard to a uh, little statement that I put up here, kind of leading into it, next slide, um, about what we're going to be looking at. Because the subject of the crucifixion story is one that's of, of extreme familiarity to many of us. In other words, um, when we think about Jesus, or if you are a Christian, or maybe you're not even a Christian here today, or maybe you are quasi-Christian or an American Christian, meaning Christianity is just nothing more than sort of the backdrop to your life. It's kind of what you were raised in. It's what you know, meaning you are Christian as opposed to Muslim or as opposed to Buddhist. It's just, it's the backdrop to your life, though it has never really had intense uh meaningfulness for you. Um, this is one of the stories about Jesus that most of us are familiar with. So that, that also presents a problem for us. And the problem is that for many of us, uh, this can become something that we are prone to not being moved by this reality, or it just takes upon a, an element of being unimpressive to us. We're not moved by it anymore. and That's dangerous. That's, that's a really bad place to ever be, to consider, to think about the fact that uh, God is coming to this world, that Jesus dies on the cross, and not really be moved by that. So um, I want to just start by saying that and then begin to look at the subject of the death of Jesus in this story. What I want to do is we'll take a look at uh, much of um, Matthew chapter 27, and there's basically five main characters throughout this story that I, wa- I want to look at, five main movements or characters uh, that we're going to try to identify with, and I think the way that Matthew writes the stories. He writes in such a way as if to say all of us are, are part of this story. All of us. Um, to some degree or another, all of us play some form of tribute into this story. Somehow. And, and the story starts off by basically describing this, these are the events that led up to the crucifixion of Jesus. And we'll talk more about why that's so significant towards the end. But before we jump into that, I want to really take a look at five of the different characters that I think we're, to, were intended by the author of Matthew to identify, to find some level of identification with one of these or some, perhaps even several of these within the story. And so, first of all, we'll take a look at, I'll just kind of tell you who we'll be looking at. First of all, we'll look at Judas. Secondly, we'll take a look at the religious leaders. Um, thirdly, Pilate who plays into the story. Fourthly, the crowd, the bigger broader general audience of people that are there. And then fifthly, we'll take a look at the soldiers, and then we'll just kind of summarize with some closing statements and wrap this up. Um, so first of all, I want to jump in and take a look at Judas. Um, most of us, we're familiar with, to some degree, who, who Judas Iscariot is. And I want to let Matthew tell the story about who Judas is and the story of Judas playing into this situation. Um, because the underwriting theme behind all of this is every one of these people, to some degree or another, contribute to the death of Jesus, every one of them. They play. There's blood on their hands. They're guilty to some degree. Each one of them share to some level, some degree of uh, complicity in the death of Jesus. But each one of them also have a unique response to the death of Jesus. And each one of them, I think, Matthew, We wanna, I just want to look at the different responses of, of each one of these uh, members within this narrative of the final uh, day of Jesus. So Matthew chapter 27, we'll start off right there. I'll basically begin reading from verse 1. Let's kind of make our way through most of chapter 27. So it starts off with this, and it says, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him, and they led him away, and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Sorry, and then verse three, it says, and when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is it to us? See to it yourself and throwing down the 30 pieces of silver in the temple, Judas departed and he went out and he hung himself. So this is a tragedy. Like this, I mean, you're you're, you're intended to read this. You're supposed to read this and feel a deep sense of of anguish. Like, oh, my gosh. This is not child's play. This is not a lighthearted story. It's not intended to be so. It's intended to bring us into the weightiness of it. There's something profound that's happening here in the storyline that we're supposed to connect with. And I think when you read the story of Judas, we're familiar to some degree with the backstory of Judas. Judas was one of the disciples or the followers or apostles of Jesus. He was called by Jesus to follow him. If you're familiar to some degree with that story, he, he betrays Jesus, he turns him in. We don't know exactly why he betrayed Jesus. Um, there's all sorts of speculations. Theologians throughout the years have speculated why Judas betrayed him. I'm not going to get into any speculation. Uh, but nonetheless, whatever the case is, Judas betrays him. Um, and he, at some point, comes to himself. At some point in the story, we're just simply told here, we're not really sure uh, what turned for Judas or why he had this change of heart. But because at some point, it's almost like he, his eyes open up and uh, Judas has this change of heart. Because uh, it's almost like a rehumanizing reality happens to Judas. Where he begins to realize, oh my gosh, what I've done is I've set in motion something That cannot be undone. He has this moment of of, of awareness that my actions have contributed to something that is unbearable, unbelievable, incomprehensible. And we don't know what brought about the change of his heart or what, maybe if you want to think about it this way, rehumanized him because there's a level of dehumanization that happens in us that leads us to say something to the effect of they're worthless I will contribute to their either dehumanizing uh, anguish or pain or hurt or their betrayal, whatever the case is. We cannot betray someone or destroy someone or attack someone's character without belittling them or seeing them as something as sub below us. and Whatever the case is, Judas has this change of heart. And he realizes, I, I, I've done something that is horrible. We, we don't know why. He had this change of heart. But he brings the money back that he was given, 30 pieces of silver. And he brings it to the chief priests and the leaders of the, uh, the, uh, of Israel. And he has, within this change of heart, throws it down. And, and they basically say, it doesn't matter to us. We don't really care. And Judas then goes out, and he hangs himself. So with Judas, the first character of the story, Judas, we don't, we don't know what the situation is or what was going on in his heart, but Judas can't imagine a universe where there is enough forgiveness to be given to him for what he's done. He can't imagine, he can't imagine a world that there is some degree of acceptance of him again. And 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 out of absolute anguish and despair and grief, Judas seeks to just simply end his, his life. Uh, the next character of the story uh, we see are the religious leaders. And what we see about the religious leaders is they seek to really kind of justify their complicity and or the guilt of their contribution to the death of Jesus. And we pick up the story in verse 6 where it goes on to say, uh, But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, they said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. And this is kind of fascinating to me because they realize that the money that they have in their hands is, is guilty. It's, it's bloody. It's... It's defiled. It's worthless. It's, it's, um, um, in other words, in their mind, they're thinking, okay, well, we got this money back, 30 pieces of silver. We're not going to give it to the temple because it's, it's dirty. It's defiled. We're not going to give it to poor people because it's, it's, we're not going to give it to God. We're not going to go tithe this money because this is dirty, filthy money. So what they, they do, and again, this is a, a little detail that Matthew tells us. So these guys are fully well aware of their complicity in this entire situation. But notice how they kind of harden themselves. They harden their hearts um, within their complicity. You have to, to some degree. That's, that's what sin does. Sin is not only an action, but it's also a power. And the more you give in to the power, the more you submit to the authority of the power of sin, uh, it has this callousing effect over your heart. It becomes easier to justify. It becomes easier to create excuses as to why we do what we do. Why we live the way that we live, why we make the choices we make, why we act the way that we act, why we live the way that we live. And it's exactly what these our religious leaders are basically uh, on the path to doing. And it goes on to say in verse 7 So they took counsel. So it's shocking. They're like, hold up, let's, let's, let's have a let's have a meeting, board meeting. Let's discuss what we should do with this 30 pieces of silver. So imagine, again, this is I'm not sure if Matthew is writing this um, and adding some level of like, Uh, Irony into the story, but these guys actually have a little board meeting. They take counsel, and they uh, bought with them what is described as a potter's field, as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. So notice how many times the the, the phrase blood is basically used here. So what these guys do is they buy a field of blood. Why does Matthew uh, give us this little detail? Now, for most of us, um, this would be a little detail that would be... um, We we would dismiss it or not really think too much about it. But back in that day, what they would do is uh, a field was a really important uh, place uh, where you would bury the dead. And we're actually told that this is a field of blood um, or or a burial place for strangers, which means foreigners, uh, people that are out of town. So imagine um, Israel, uh, specifically Jerusalem, uh, becomes this hub of religious life every year, which means that upwards of millions of people come to Israel. And so obviously out of that sheer magnitude of people coming the volume of people you're going to have people that die and so if you know by way of uh hypothetics if you today had some friends or family that were to go to another country and while they're on vacation in another country they die um what we would do is we make reparations to bring their body back to america so that they can be buried in a plot that's you know closer to home that's how how we would do things not in that day the way that it would work in that day would be that if you were to die, they would take special efforts to very quickly uh, put the body into the ground. Um, so if you died in Jerusalem, you wouldn't even think about bringing the body back to wherever um, hometown you were from. You would just use the public burial site that was there as a way of showing honor to the dead. And so what's, what's surprising is that these guys actually what we would describe as they invest in infrastructure. Um, Today, we wouldn't think of burial plots as infrastructure, but back in that day, it was infrastructure. It was a way of kind of investing in the good of the city. And so Matthew kind of drops this this hint, this subtle hint that people are going to benefit unknowingly, unwittingly, from the death of an innocent man for generations to come. And so Matthew just drops a simple... Reality that these guys, and not only that, but it's all part of the fulfillment of prophecy. Because in verse 9, he says, And then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, and the price of him on whom the price Had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them their potter's field, for the Lord had directed me. So, this is a a reference to an Old Testament passage. So, what we see, first of all, with regard to Judas, was the sense of utter despair over his complicity in the death of Jesus, his guilt. What we see with regard to the religious leaders is they justify their complicity. There's a sense of hardening of heart as they justify the fact that we had to do it. We had to do it. Jesus had to die. He was a threat to us. He was a threat to our establishment, threat to our empire. Somebody had to take him out. The third character we see in the story is Pilate. Pilate. So if you're reading that, uh, it's not Pilate. Uh, It's Pilate. Pontius Pilate was an interesting guy. Um, He was, we're we're told throughout history, he was just a horrible guy. Um, He actually hated living in in Israel. He hated it. Um, He was a military leader. So up until that point, Israel um, had been basically, it was an occupied territory. And Rome had basically set forth its occupation. Prior to um, Pilate coming in there, there was, a, uh, there was a, a, a king. His name was Herod, Herod the Great. And then Herod died. He was the Herod that sought to put Jesus to death at the beginning of the story of Matthew. So Herod dies. And so Herod kind of divvies up his kingdom amongst some of his sons. And his sons are horrible. They're greedy. They're... Um, argumentative, they're combative, they're just horrible people. They didn't bring peace to the region. And so Caesar does not want a kingdom where there are battles and wars and bloodshed. So Caesar um, completely circumvents uh, these Herods, you know, the legacy of King Herod, because they're not doing a good job. So he basically sends a military general in there to basically rule with an iron fist. His name is Pilate. Now imagine if you're Pilate Um, your main job, main desire in life is to get out as quickly as you can, to get a promotion, to get out of the region of the Middle East. You want to get back to Rome. You want to get back to where the parting's at, where all the life is happening, where you can get a better promotion. But now you're stuck in this horribly hot um, zone and with a bunch of people that have religious customs that are radically backwards to your way of life and understanding. And so Pilate is one of these guys that hates Jewish sentimentality, hates the Jewish religion. And so he was really an enemy. People didn't like uh, Pilate at all. But Pilate's main job was to just simply keep peace at all costs in the region. So he was always killing people. He was always putting pressure. So anytime there was an uprising or there was some form of rebellion or revolt against Caesar, uh, he would oftentimes respond with an iron fist and just simply crush the opposition fiercely. So he was a guy that was greatly feared. So Pilate plays into the story. What's fascinating about the story of uh, Pilate the how he plays in the story. Now listen to how Pilate plays into this. Um, we see that now Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor then asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priest and the elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave them no answer. Not even a single charge. So that the governor was greatly amazed. So here's Pilate, shocked. See, Jesus doesn't fit the stereotypical profile of an of, of a insurrectionist. All right? So the idea of insurrection was common. It happened all the time throughout the Middle East. There are always these revolts. Now, again, like I said, think about it this way. In parts of the world where America or England or some other Western community goes in and they exercise some form of occupation, whether it's perceived occupation or whether it's actual uh, militaristic type occupation, you will have revolts within those territories. What do you call revolts against uh, an imposing occupation? What do you call that? If you are... On the occupation side, what do you call revolts against that? Terrorism. Call it terrorism. So what's Jesus being accused of? There are two things that Jesus is basically being accused of. On the one hand, treason. That's, that's the question. Are you a king? That's a question. Are, are, you, are you really a king? And Jesus' answer to Pilate is very ambiguous and vague. And he basically just simply says, you've said so. As if to say, look, your understanding of a king... My understanding of a king, radically different. But whatever, it's as you say. If if I had more time, if I had more opportunity, I would expand it. But I'm not even confident that you would even fully understand or comprehend my understanding of kingship versus Caesar's understanding of kingship. But I don't think Jesus was being degrading in any way. I think he was just simply putting forth the fact that, yeah, sure, whatever, as, as you say. So on the one hand, Jesus was being charged with treason because he would be setting up another kingdom in the place of Caesar. At least that's what gets nailed over his head on the cross. This is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. So treason. And on the other hand, Jesus is being charged with terrorism because the religious leaders are basically charging Jesus with saying he's threatening to tear down or destroy the temple. Now, the temple, if you're familiar, is this massive structure, be kind of like, Someone coming on the scene and being like, hey, World Trade Center, it's coming down. I'm going to take it down. It'll be destroyed by my hands. That is a charge or an act or at least an alleged act of, of, now, Jesus was talking about an entirely different temple. He's talking about the body, his body as being a temple that would be destroyed. But nonetheless, these were the charges that were leveled against Jesus. So here's Pilate, this this, uh, recognized point of power in the Middle East. And before him is Jesus, the, the king of kings. The irony couldn't be more profound. Now, as we go on to see that uh, within the storyline, he goes on to say, then Pilate said to him, do you not hear the many things that, and testify against you? Uh, but he gave them no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. So we go on to read in the story in verse 15. It says, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted And they had a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. And so when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? Now, in some translations, ancient translations, actually some of your translations might read Jesus Barabbas or Yeshua Barabbas. Um, There is an ancient tradition that uh, Origen, who lived many, many many years ago, uh, saw the phrase Jesus Barabbas and uh, sought to omit the Yeshua, Jesus. Uh, Jesus was a very common name. It would be like, in modern day language, Mike. Right? Mike. Um, just a common, normal, standard name. Or like in an ancient, or, like in, or I should say a modern Middle Eastern country, like, uh, who's Muhammad? And like, everybody raises their hand. I'm Muhammad. Like, in that ancient culture, who's, who's Yeshua? Uh, a lot of Yeshua's would raise their hand. So it was a very common name. But Matthew tells us, in some your translation, that Pilate stands up and says, who shall I give to you? So they had this custom. We're not exactly certain where this custom came from, but maybe it was a a PR move on Pilate's behalf to try to uh, at least some way bring about some level of appeasement with these people that hated him. It was a way of basically kind of creating some level of bridge or connection with these guys. So whatever the situation was, during the time of Passover, which would have been this direct season, Pilate realized, like, hey, Jesus is innocent. He absolutely gets the reality. Jesus is not guilty. And you've got, you got to hear this. Pilate knows in his soul that Jesus is not guilty of anything that's being charged. But Pilate is a puppet. Pilate is someone that is controlled not only by the religious leaders and how they think of him, his approval rating among them is extremely important because if Pilate sinks in the ratings of how they approve or think about him, um, there will be revolts that will start. And if revolts get started, and that means that Pilate's not doing a good good job keeping peace in his region. Word will get back to Caesar and Caesar will kill Pilate. That's that's the way uh, you didn't just get fired, you, you got killed. And so Pilate was deeply concerned about his approval ratings because his entire livelihood depended upon how he is perceived. So he recognizes there is a way for me to somehow figure out a back door to get this Yeshua uh, set free. So he brings up this guy by the name of Yeshua Barabbas, which uh, if you're familiar with the the Greek, Barabbas, uh, means son of the father, bar, son, Abba, which when Jesus says when you pray, say our father, our Abba, um, so here's the interesting irony in this story. Pilate's basically saying there's two Yeshua's. One is Yeshua of Nazareth. The other, Yeshua, son of the father. One is a revolutionary. One has been guilty, Mark tells us, of actually committing murder. One has blood on its hands. One Jesus of Nazareth will shed his blood, uh, which one should I release to you? On the one hand, one is a known criminal for killing. On the other hand, Jesus of Nazareth is one that says, when your enemy strikes you, give him your other cheek. That's the path to victory. Yeshua Barabbas says the path to victory is kill, slaughter, drop a bomb. That's how we win. The contrast could not be more ...stark than how Pilate presents it. Which one should I release to you? And then he goes on. In the story, it says in verse 16, and it says... ...and they had this notorious prisoner named Barabbas. And so when they had gathered, Pilate then said to them... ...whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus... ...called the Messiah, the king. For he knew... That it was out of envy that the religious leaders had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on judgment. So this is another like little segue, a little addition that he adds to the story. He says that uh, his wife sent word to him. Have nothing to do with this righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today as a result of a dream. So, so imagine this. Um, one of the shows that my, my, my family has really gotten into watching a lot lately um, is NCIS? Have you guys ever seen that? It's amazing, so so good. Anyways, um, <laughs> Gibbs, is, his, his name is Lieutenant Gibbs or whatever Gibbs. I don't know what he is. I don't know if lieutenant is the right word. But anyways, um, he, whenever he's interrogating uh, a suspect, he he hates being interrupted. So it's so the worst thing you can ever do is interrupt or disrupt his interrogation. Here, Pilate's inter- he's in- interrogating Jesus, and his wife somehow either sends a message to him or herself comes in. And interrupts his interrogation of Jesus and says, look, I just had a dream. And in the dream, I, I, was, I was, was informed that this Jesus had nothing to do with him. He's an innocent man. So Pilate not only recognizes that he has the potential of a riot on his hands, not only that, his wife comes to him and says, I have almost a divine word from God or the gods or however she would view God that you're not supposed to do anything with this man. So he's in a quandary right now. He's like, what do I do with all this data and all this information? I know that Jesus is innocent, but if I release him, I'm going to have a riot on my hands. And if I have a riot on my hands, I'm dead. It's about playing politics for him. It's about trying to figure out the system, rig the system in such a way so that it's tilted in a way that gets him out first and foremost Above me and all of them. Verse nineteen it says. Besides, while he was sitting there, verse twenty. Jump on forward. He says, "Now the chief priests and the elders they persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus." And it says the governor again said to them, "Which of the two do you want me to release to you?" And they said, "Barabbas." And Pilate then said to them, "What then? What shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ?" And they all said, "Let him be crucified." And he said, "Why?" What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So you can see the complexity of this. Pilate has a problem on his hands, a massive problem on his hands. Verse 24, here's how he responds to his complicity. It says this, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather than a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. So Pilate's response is to somehow, in this state of denial, say, I'm innocent of this. Do you see the irony here? Standing next to Pilate is the only one who's innocent. And Pilate has the goal to say, I'm innocent. He's in denial of his connectedness To this crime. He's in denial of any level. Any degree of his complicity. In the death of the righteous one. So. Again Judas. He responds out of despair. And he commits suicide. The religious leaders. They respond in such a way as to justify. Or to make excuses for why. They needed to play. And contribute in a role. Of putting to death Jesus. Pilate is in denial over his. Complicity and guilt. And even has a nerve to describe himself as innocent. Now we move to the crowd. And says in verse 27. Just real briefly. It says. And all the people. Then they answered to Pilate. Let his blood be on us. And on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus. They delivered him up to be crucified. So the crowd. This crowd. Whoever this crowd is. Um, one final thing I would just say is, this, is that there has been a tradition within the church, and I, and I would say it's, it's, it's a false tradition, that has taught that on this day, today, we would celebrate today as what's called uh, Palm Sunday, that there's a crowd of people saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king, um, wanting to acknowledge the fact that he's, he's the king of, of Israel. And then there, the tradition goes on to say that just a week later, that very same crowd was then saying crucify him. Um, and, and that's actually inaccurate. Most scholars today would basically have have proven that that is false. It's not true. It's not accurate. It's not an accurate way of understanding how the scripture is playing out. Uh, then who is this crowd? This crowd is uh, a gathering of religious leaders and people that dwelt within the city of Jerusalem. Who are the people that were hailing Hosanna? They were people from out of the area. People that were perhaps from the Galilee area. People that were familiar with the ministry and the story and the life of Jesus and The narrative of what Jesus was bringing upon themselves. They were proclaiming him as king. So the people living within Jerusalem, the ones that had power, the ones that had a lot to lose, they were the ones chanting, crucify him. But see, the way they respond to their complicity is they say, we'll take it. Bring it on. Bring it on. We recognize our complicity in this. And they pridefully gloat in their commitment, and in their contribution to the death of Jesus. Finally, we see the soldiers. And what we see with regard to the soldiers in verse 27 says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him, and they put him in a scarlet robe. Why scarlet? Scarlet is purple. Purple was always the color of kings. It was a very costly and expensive uh, dye that was uh, often produced from, from very... Uh, challenging means, and so people didn't walk around wearing purple. It was a color that was uh, specifically allocated for uh, kingship. And so they put the scarlet robe on Jesus as a way of doing nothing other than simply mocking him as a game. They're playing a game. The way they respond to their complicity, their contribution, is they have this level of indifference and cynicism whereby they're just like, We don't really care. It's just a game to us. It's a game in terms of their mindset. So they mock Jesus, putting this robe upon him. In verse 29 says, and twisting together a crown of thorns. um, They put it on his head, and they put a reed in his right hand. The reed was a symbol of like a a scepter. It was oftentimes always what a king would would carry. as a way of raising a scepter, saying, I have the power here. And they put this reed in Jesus' hand. Somehow he actually... Uh, allows himself to receive the reed and receive the crown, whatever, and Jesus there is is going along with all of this, or he's uh, coerced or controlled into doing this. Uh, It says, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and they took the reed, and then they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and they put on his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. And here's where the story uh, concludes. Because we have to think about the subject of, of crucifixion. Um, why? First of all, why, why crucifixion? Uh, there's a book I've been reading, and it's been uh, quite amazing to me. as a uh, female theologian named uh, Fleming Rutledge. She, she writes this. If Jesus' demise is construed merely as a death, even as a painful, tortured death, The crucial point will be lost. Crucifixion was specifically designed to be the ultimate insult to personal dignity. The last word in humiliating and dehumanizing treatment, degradation, was the point. The cross was the ultimate disgraceful event. She goes on to say that Christians often have asked the question, why did Jesus have to die? She goes on to say that a better question to be asked is why was Jesus crucified. So she broadens it and just said, or I should say more specifically identifies, it's it's not that it's not just so much that Jesus died but why crucifixion? Why not jump off a cliff? Why not be shot through with an arrow? Why not be trampled under wild horses? Why crucifixion? Out of every form of death why crucifixion? Why did he choose this? She goes on She says, the emphasis needs to be not just on the death, but the manner of the death. To speak of a crucifixion is to speak of a slave's death. You might think of all slaves in the American colonies who were killed at the whim of an overseer or of an owner. Uh, No one remembers them. And their stories were thrown away with their bodies. This was the destiny. Chosen. Chosen. By the creator and the Lord of the universe. To suffer and to die a death. As one viewed with contempt. Held in disdain. A nobody. He was despised and rejected by men. As one from whom we hid our faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah 53 verse 3 says. Thus the son of God entered into solidarity with the lowest. The least of all of his creation. The nameless. The despised. The sinful rebel. And the forgotten, the off of all things, 1 Corinthians 4.13. Diedrich Bonhoeffer would put it this way. God lets himself be pushed out of the world onto the cross. God. The one who has unlimited power. That's a that's question we have to think about. How does the one, the one being, capital O, one being in all the universe, utilize unlimited resources and power when attacked, when crushed, when shamed, when bullied. He lays his life down for him. Which brings me to the final question I'm done. Why, why die? Why did he die? And I'll, I'll let Paul the Apostle answer this and I'm, I'm done. Paul would answer this way um, and I think one of the most Profound passages in the New Testament. Uh, He just simply spells it out this way. Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. He says, for while we were still helpless, at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person. Think Think about that. If there's someone that was really good, would you lay your life down for them? Possibly not. So he says, rarely would someone actually lay their life down for a just person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did you catch that? God proves his love. God's love is the driving force behind why the crucifixion? Why the death? Why that form of death? It was his way of saying, want to know how I will connect with those who are victimized, who are survivors, who have been bullied, who have been betrayed, who have felt the insufferable loss of someone that you loved, that you gave your heart to, but they turned their back on you. The cross... Is God's way of entering into solidarity with every human being that has suffered, is suffering, will suffer. And it's his way of saying, I will set right that which is wrong in this world by taking upon myself the consequences of guilt and shame and sin and rebellion and brokenness upon myself to bring about newness and wholeness. This is the story that God invites us into. This is the story that Matthew is telling to say, Where do you stand? Who do you identify with? Which character do you hear and read about and see as one that you share with? All of them, Christ has died for them. That's the story we find ourselves. The gospel is always one whereby it invites us to identify where we stand, but ultimately to not stop there, to not end there, to not conclude there, but to go to where the story leads, which is a resurrected God stretching out his hands, to us to trust him, to give our hearts to him, to give our lives to him, to entrust our despair, to entrust our egos and our prides and our self-centeredness, to entrust our game playing, to entrust all of these little things that we set up to try to rig the system, to promote ourselves, to count them all, what Paul would say, as dung for the excellency of God. It's always an invitation to trust him. So, with that, I don't know where you're at, but this is an opportunity to do business with God, to cast our cares upon him, to maybe bring our cynicism to him, to bring our sin, our shame, our guilt, our despair to him, and allow him to bring healing to us. So why don't we stand? I'm going to have the worship team come on up, and we'll just take a few moments to just pause and reflect. In fact, what I'd like to do right now is, is just quiet ourselves to maybe just close our eyes, and I've done this before, just invited you to maybe stretch out your hands as a way of just saying, God, I need you, as a way of just saying, God, I, I, I want to trust you, as a way of inviting the Holy Spirit to speak to you. What are the areas in your heart that need to be made right before God? And uh, when you're ready, if you'd like, we have communion. It's a way of remembering the broken body of Christ and the poured out blood, to partake of it, to remember that though we have all been offenders, though we have all been contributors to the death of Jesus, we have all been invited to be washed and cleansed and made new and rectified, to be justified, to be made right with a God that we have wronged. So let me pray. Just consider, think, contemplate on the beauty of the cross which in and of itself is a shocking statement. And we'll sing. And we'll respond.